Hi, my name is Vicki, and welcome to BSF. We are going to be studying Matthew 1 tonight, so let's pray and jump right in. Please pray with me. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for a brand new start in uh, BSF. Thank you that we can be confident, whether this is the first time we are studying Matthew or uh, the 50th time, that your word Uh, you promise is living and active and that by your spirit, uh, our hearts can be instructed. Our minds can learn about who you are and our lives can be transformed. We pray, Lord, that uh, for myself and for all those within the sound of my voice, that our lives would be uh, reflective of this time that we've spent before your word. May our May this time be ultimately glorifying to your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and we pray in his name. Amen. So, your car is making some unusual sounds when you stopped at the stoplight. The tone of your boss's last email seems strangely stern. The the baby is fussy, and you don't know why. The headache has come out of nowhere after lunch, and... Is it stress? Is it allergies? Is it COVID? Sometimes we can realize that something is wrong, but we aren't very good at understanding the true nature of the problem. You and I could probably make some lists of things in our world that aren't as they should be, Um, things in our neighborhood, in our church, and our families, things that are wrong. But what really is the problem? And what is the solution? We can often realize something is wrong, but we're not particularly good as humans in diagnosing the true nature of problems, especially really big ones. And I think this is common to the human condition. In fact, having problems in general is a human universal. Is a human universal. The original first century audience of Matthew's gospel account faced different problems, some of them than we do, um, but not all of them. Uh, one of the different ones, many of Matthew's Jewish audience would have recognized particularly the Roman occupation of their country, Palestine, as one significant felt problem. This problem, in fact, that they perceived had given rise over the centuries to a messianic expectation that uh, in the first century, the hope that God would at long last send the promised Savior King Messiah who would come restore and right um, everything that is wrong and particularly kicking those Romans out. Um, And so, when Jesus came, as Matthew is going to unfold to us as the unexpected king, there the expectations of um, many Jewish people in the first century clashed with what that what kind of king Jesus um, was coming as. Jesus spent his earthly ministry doing other things than taking on the Romans or purifying the Jewish priesthood, or addressing the other problems that people felt. And the reality is, as we will see through Matthew, that God's plan to reclaim and restore the kingdom of heaven on earth is far more comprehensive than any of us realize. It addresses not only our felt problems, but most importantly, what God knows is our real problem. 
Um, our real problems do not just consist of foreign oppressors or uh, cars that break down or viruses like COVID or bosses' unfair expectation or environmental concerns, or even something terrible like systemic racism. Yes, these are problems, but there is a much deeper root that God knows needed to be addressed. And the heart of our problems is that God made this world good, and He made us in His image to be His vice regents on earth. And yet our very first parents, Adam and Eve, rebelled against God's good authority, And just as God had warned would happen, death entered the world and human fellowship with God was broken. All humans have inherited an innate desire to assert our own authority over that of God. That is the fundamental problem, rebellious hearts, disloyalty to God the King, and God's good plan to reclaim and restore this, His world, is a comprehensive plan of redemption, and it is the big plan centering on a person, Jesus Christ. He is the only one who knows our true need. He's the only one who is willing and able to address it. King Jesus, although humanly unexpected, is exactly what God knows that we need. So we're going to get into Matthew 1. We're going to look at it in two divisions. Um, They're pretty obvious as you open your Bible. Uh, The first 17 verses, chapter 1, verses 1 to 17, we will look at Jesus' right background, and then we will look at the rest of the chapter, verses 18 to 25, Jesus' right birth. And so, our goal today is to study Matthew 1 well, but also a second goal is to establish some habits that will help us be wise readers of this book the Matthew's Gospel account. And the first habit is to learning how to find Matthew. And so, where is Matthew? Um, If you've opened up your Bible, you probably know, or if you've turned it on, maybe it isn't quite so obvious. Matthew is, as one one little girl said, where the Old Testament and the New Testament meet. That is a helpful image for us, because not just physically, Yes, Matthew is the first book in the Old Testament, and it comes uh, in most English Bibles after uh, the last book of the Hebrew Bible, and Malachi, um, in our translations. But overall, in a metaphysical way, um, Matthew is a door from the one to the other. He shows us how the Old Testament and the New Testament relate to each other. And so, Matthew, from his first words, uh, chapter 1, as we're going to study today, indicates that this is not a new story coming out of nowhere, but this is the continuation of a big, very important story. Reading Matthew uh, well means seeing Jesus as rooted in God's Old Testament and unfolding into God's promised future um, for the world. So let's dive on right on in now that we've found uh, Matthew. We rem- are, are going to be included in the fact that we're going to be looking at the Old Testament, thinking in Old Testament ways um, a lot. We're going to jump in. Um, so in the beginning of a book or a movie, you probably want to grab the audience's attention. And Matthew does that, and he starts off with a genealogy, a listing of names. You and I might yawn. <laughs> 
Um, we might be tempted to skip over this or expect that Matthew would be, you know, kind of as interesting as a phone book or a family or as interesting as, as a family tree is interesting. No, I suggest to you that what Matthew does here is appropriate for his audience, which is probably largely Jewish uh, Christians or not, and and or non Christians um, who are will be their attention will be grabbed by what. Matthew lays out. Um, how can a list of names grab their your attention? Well, let's see. Um, we're going to know who Jesus is. We need to understand his background, and that is where Matthew starts. Um, so, the first verse, verse 1, sets the frame for this unit, and in fact, for the, the entire book. Um, it makes four startling claims. So, let's dive in and read it. Uh, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The first two Greek words, which are translated in my uh, ESV translation, the book of the genealogy, um, echo the generations recorded in Genesis, and especially in Genesis 5 and 11, which lead to Abraham. And as we will see, as clued in by the end of the verse here, the son of, that Jesus is the son of David, it also should evoke for Jewish Old Testament, uh, Jewish readers who were uh, fluent in the Old Testament, that um, it's aligning with the genealogical records in the book of Chronicles. And so, subtly, Matthew is doing this thing from the very beginning, that he is aligning his writing with Genesis, the first book of the Hebrew Bible, and with Chronicles, which in the Hebrew Bible is the last book. So, he's making some big claims even about his writing and putting them um, in association with the Hebrew Scriptures. So, Matthew introduces Jesus with this triple title. He is Christ, the son of David, and the son of Abraham. What is he saying about Jesus with these three things? Uh, let's look at each in turn. We're going to look at them now um, just in reverse order to be chronological, but um, and then we'll look at it from uh, looking at from Christ uh, and going the right way that we read. Um, so, let's think about Jesus as the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of the Jewish nation. As we studied the last year in Genesis, God made a covenant with Abraham in the context of all of human rebellion. Um, God made a covenant and promised Abraham land and offspring and blessing. And he said, all nations will be blessed through him in Genesis 12. And calling Jesus the son of Abraham aligns Jesus actually with Isaac, the heir of these covenant promises, uh, who was the the biological son of, of Abraham. But Jesus is to be, just like Isaac, the conduit of God's blessing, not just to Abraham's family, but to the whole world. Um, and so, to then to think about D Jesus as the son of David, David was the king that God chose for Israel. He was a shepherd and a man after God's own heart. And so, to call Jesus the son of David evokes two things. Uh, the first is God's promises to David in Second Samuel. So, we don't have time to read Second Samuel 7, but please go and do that. Um, it is. It will really help you understand the context of this claim that Matthew is making. 
And Second Samuel 7, God's covenant with, with David, is one of the mountaintops of the Old Testament, just like God's covenant promises with Abraham. God in Second Samuel 7 narrows and expands. Um, he evokes all the promises to, to Abraham, but narrowed on to David. And as he expands them. And so we will see this also with Jesus. All of Abraham's promises, all of David's promises that God is making are going to funnel through the Lord Jesus Christ and his person. Um, the second thing I think that calling Jesus the son of David evokes is the success and failure of David's son and heir Solomon. And so as we get to this, um, in uh, verse 6, um, or as we will look early on, or later on, Solomon was the one who built a house for the Lord. He was the agent of God's peace and blessing and righteousness. He had wisdom to his own people and wisdom that he shared with the nations. But his heart became unfaithful to the Lord. And so, to call Jesus the son of David evokes not only the hope of David's pro- the promises that God made to David, but also the longing for a faithful heir, a faithful son um, to one a, a Davidic king who would love and trust the Lord. And so, slowly and steadily throughout the Old Testament, God revealed more about this promised son of David, and he would be known as, in the later prophets, as the Christ. Um, the promised Redeemer, and uh, many details come about that. Christ is not Jesus' last name, but it is the title. It is He is the anointed, um, the word Christos and the word Meshuach, um, Greek and in Hebrew, refer to and the anointing with oil. And so, this is the title of a king. Uh, there were others who were anointed in the Old Testament, but predominantly, in the Old Testament, an anointed one was a king. Kings were not crowned in the Old Testament. They were anointed with oil. That was symbolic of their appointment to a specific service by a deity. And so, it's the Lord's anointing of someone who gives them the authority to uh, reign as his vice regent over God's people. And in that role, they needed to respond with reciprocal faithfulness to demonstrate loyalty to the Lord. Um, They were a king in their own right, but under God's ultimate kingly authority. And you can read in Deuteronomy 17, Psalm 72, and other places in the Old Testament that expand that idea about the Lord's anointed king and the responsibility that would come with such a role. And so we can see in this first verse, we've only <laughs> we're only one verse in, and yet Matthew has packed a big punch by providing Jesus' pedigree, which is what he's going to do now. Matthew is saying that Jesus legally qualifies to be the Christ, just as there are legal qualifications for 
someone to be the president in the United States, um, Jesus is meeting the legal qualifications to be the promised anointed one. And these are big claims. Matthew knows that he needs to support those claims. And the first step is going to be to offer a line of evidence of his lineage, which is one way to understand these first seven verse, 17 verses. It is vital to establish Jesus' legal right to this claim. But Matthew is a master stylist, as we will hopefully see. He has been, by the time that he is writing this gospel, scholars think Matthew has been teaching and preaching about Jesus for decades. And so, I suggest to you, this is not material that he just, you know, kind of popped into his head and he wrote a little bit here and he wrote a bit there. He has masterfully structured, in particular, this account um, to evoke a larger story and to um, use many literary devices that we will be able to appreciate as we go further into the book. So, as we go through the next uh, 16 verses, verses 2 through 17, um, we need to remember that Matthew's Jewish audience would have known the history of their people. These are, for us, um, many unfamiliar, maybe even some unpronounceable names, but to the Jewish audience, this is their history, and they know it, like we know in the United States, George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, Martin Luther King Jr., Rosa Parks, John F. Kennedy, and you can tell a story through names. Which names you select matter. You can highlight different things and invoke different aspects of our national, beautiful but complicated story. There are things to celebrate and things to lament. And Matthew is doing, therefore, I suggest to you, more here than just establishing Jesus' legal claim. Of course, he is doing that. um, But he is doing it in such a way that his readers would begin to understand the backdrop of Jesus' kingship. Jesus' kingship, although it's humanly unexpected, is exactly what God knows that we need. We as humans and Israel as a nation had pretty big needs, and this genealogy is going to highlight those. Jesus is coming to meet our core needs as well as all of our other needs too. So, Matthew, again, as the master structure and stylist, he is going to trace three eras in Israel's history and the names of and and, uh, succession of the sons tell a story, evoking from Genesis 12 all the way to the end of uh, Nehemiah, actually. And so, we're going to look for the larger trends, but I do want to just notice here uh, Matthew's skill. He starts with Christ because that is the most important thing he wants to emphasize. Um, Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, and then in a chiasm, if you're familiar with that word, he starts, he reverses it and goes out. And so he's going to start telling us the detail from the son of Abraham, or Abraham, and then he's going to go from David to the exile, and then ultimately the Christ. Christ is the the biggest claim, and that's the one he offers first and last. Um, okay, so we're gonna we could spend hours and hours in this genealogy, and uh, I will not inflict that upon you, or I'll try not to. But the first era, um, verses two to six, uh, or two to six a, is the era of Abraham to David. 
Um, This journey follows Abraham's family from being sojourners in a promised land to being settled in that land with a king enthroned in Jerusalem. So it's a really, like, lots of up and downs happen here. If you're familiar with that part of uh, Israel's story, we have God's promises to Abraham. He God called Abraham out of Ur, and he promised him a land, offspring, blessing, and honor. And uh, he got to the promised land, and he long he had, had to wait a long time. But God did supernaturally provide for this long-awaited son, Isaac. And so, we see that God's promises to Abraham and to Abraham's descendants are unfolded in God's right timing. God remains faithful. And even though his ways are often mysterious, um, he will be faithful despite human fallibility and faithlessness. And we can see that human rebellion and wickedness cannot derail God's plan. This line does not um, include only godly people. Um, Abraham was the father of Isaac. Both of those men are do- their documented uh, mistakes in the Genesis account. Isaac, the father of Jacob, Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Um, and it goes on. These are these names testify to God's mercy and His deliverance of the family. Um, it. The, his commit God's commitment to Abraham and his covenant promises with Abraham includes God's willingness to creatively discipline Israel when they turn down wrong paths, which is away from him. Away from the Lord is always the wrong path um, in the Old Testament narrative. And so, it will also highlight um, God honors those who are loyal to him. Um, even and especially outsiders. And we can see this, especially in this first section, by the surprising inclusion of women, outsider women, Tamar, um, who was likely, we don't know for sure, but likely a Canaanite woman. Um, Rahab, we know for sure, was uh, lived in Jericho and she was a Canaanite. Ruth was a Moabitess. And um, Bathsheba, uh, is not by named there by name, but she was the wife of Uriah, a Hittite, and so also uh, in at least in marriage related to a Canaanite. And um, okay, so we see God's faithfulness to His covenant promises um, in that first era, and the second era, verses uh, seven to eleven, the era of the son of David, Solomon, to the Babylonian exile. And so, this is the time when the kingdom, so David is in Jerusalem, and he's over all of Israel, and he, um, that, his son, um, then Solomon started at like the pinnacle. He's the king over all of Israel, and he um, is appointed to build a house or like a temple for the Lord. And um, so, he starts out very strong, but we see in this trend, this um, this list of names in verses 7 to 11, who are all kings, Davidic kings. Um, this is the pattern of God's faithfulness and mercy set against the steady decline of human rebellion and faithfulness. Um, God sent repeated warnings through prophets of coming disaster. God does not delight in judgment, these names testify, but he will not turn a blind eye 
to wickedness and rebellion forever. He is patient. He is slow to anger, but he is also just. And so, as Israel's faithfulness to the Lord, or in like in the southern kingdom, actually in Judah, um, their faithfulness to the Lord declined. We see the increase of wicked kings. Um, Ahaz is a big wicked king, and Manasseh, and um, they are um, they increased, and there are a few punctuated faithful kings. Um, Hezekiah and Josiah especially, but they could not arrest the decline, the spiritual decline of the people. And I think one of the things that this section testifies to is that a mortal Davidic king, even a faithful one, cannot fix the people's problem of disloyalty to the Lord. But we see God remained faithful, and human sin could not derail his plan. Um But we see the faithfulness of the people left God with no other recourse than to expel them from the promised land into exile in Babylon. And so that's the third era in verses 12 to 16. We hear about this surprising, it's very surprising to have an event recorded in a biblical genealogy, the Babylonian exile to the Christ. And so for 70 years, Judah, or um, that that tribe, or the remnant of Israel, remained in Babylon. The Davidic king, um, Jeconiah, um, the father of Shealtiel, was a went in chains, and he re- was dethroned, and it uh, the Davidic king remained dethroned until Jesus' coming. And so, under the authority of a foreign king, we learn um, the that the Davidic heir Zerubbabel was used by the Lord to lead a remnant um, back to the land. Zerubbabel was a governor or a prince, but he wasn't a king. Um, he was under uh, under foreign rule. Um, yet the return from the exile, so they did come back to the land, but it was far short of the glorious promises that uh, the prophecies lead us to expect that the anointed king would bring in. And so, um, like into in this next section, um, during the like during the Egyptian captivity in the section, um, the first section, we know little about these names. Verses. 13 to 16, there's a shadowy silence of suffering, and yet there's some who are named after faithful Israelites in Scripture, Zadok and Eliezer, Jacob and Joseph, which suggest a sort of longing for that kind of service, that kind of faithfulness, um, a time when Israel was more faithful to the Lord. And that be- brings us to the pinnacle of Matthew's listing in verse 16, Um the 14th generation of the Christ. And two things I think we can note here in verse 16 is, number one, there's a shift in language, which Matthew's audience, which largely would have been hearing this account versus reading it with their eyes, marks this shift in language, marks Jesus up as unique, sets him apart from his earthly or human ancestors. And so, from verses 2 all the way down to 16a, Matthew used the same pattern um, in translated in English, math, the father begat the son or fathered the son. And so, it's always the father is the subject and the son is the object grammatically. But at the end of verse 16, we have very different language, which is um, very, you can hear it very clearly in the Greek, the original Greek, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, 
and now it's passive voice, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. And so, that is a distinct shift. Jesus is a unique one, the unique heir, and it's culmination. The line stops here. There's no physical generation after Jesus Christ in this line. He is the culmination. Um, The second thing I think we can note about this last, um, the way that this ends climactically, is it sounds, it feels a little bit weird. Why would Matthew end succession of this climactic, you know, dramatic culmination with the name of a woman um, or the mother, the husband of Mary? that is would have been, un, I think, unusual in the first century, given um, just the way the, the society worked. Um, and we could think from that that God's plan has a place for all people, men, women, Jew, and Gentile, which certainly that is true. But I suggest to you that there may be even more than this, that perhaps Matthew is hinting at the very first promise of the Christ, of the Messiah, in Gen- Genesis 3.15, the Proto-Evangelion um, is what it's called, uh, God's promise that the seed of the woman, the son of the woman, the offspring would crush the head of the, serp- of the serpent. And Christ is the one. He is the promised offspring of that woman. There is no other. Um, he answers God's promise in Genesis 3.15. So, we get to the last verse in this section, a um, summary. Matthew wants us to see, um, verse 17, So, all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Okay, what is going on here? <laughs> What's up with the 14s? It feels a little too tidy, right? Matthew's list, I suggest to you, is representative, not exhaustive. And representative does not mean untrustworthy. Um, consider that uh, there are probably some generations that are skipped. Um, that is not untrustworthy. Think about how Jesus and also we'll see his uh, uh, Joseph in verse 20 will be called the son of David, and that they are truthfully uh, referred to the son of David, although many generations separated them from David. Why 14? Uh, I, don't th- I don't think we know. Scholars have different ideas. Perhaps Matthew chose 14 as a memory aid, perhaps because 14 was a number that was associated with the Hebrew, a numeric value of the Hebrew name David, but Matthew doesn't tell us why. So, I don't think we can be uh, certain about this, but I think what we can be certain about is that Matthew is showing us, his audience, different periods of history are in alignment in parallel. And we will hear Matthew tell and show us this in other ways, but here it is. He is saying, we are entering a new era. This is a new age. The coming of Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all these other periods. And that, which brings us to our first principle, that Jesus is at the center of God's plan of redemption. Jesus is at the center of God's plan of redemption. Um, this is an unbroken succession. Jesus is legally Joseph's heir. He is the eligible son of Abraham and David. And this suggests all of God's covenant promises to Israel 
have narrowed on to Jesus as the Lord's anointed, his Christ King. What does that mean? That means there is no accessing of God's blessing outside of Jesus Christ. All of God's mysterious and wonderful promises of redemption culminate in Jesus. There is no lasting blessing outside of Jesus. There is no lasting restoration or healing, no true flourishing. And if this is so, what does it mean for you and me? What does it mean for your felt problems and your needs? Um, If you think about what are the things that are weighing on you, on your heart, on your mind right now, um, what's going on in your job, what's going on in your family or in your church or in your neighborhood or in in our larger culture, um, do you select certain problems uh, that you think Jesus would have no interest in? And just manage them on your own or deal with the anxiety or uh, the fears in that own way. Matthew wants us to know that Jesus is the kind of king who has the time and the desire to be involved in your life, in mine. If he can handle our big, our true need, he also can handle our felt needs Um, What does it look like to have an appropriately sized understanding of Jesus with respect to your life problems? Are you you willing to let Jesus into those spaces and to ask him to guide you, to help you understand what restoration looks like, what redemption looks like, what flourishing looks like for you even now in this time while we're waiting for for Jesus' return to culminate his kingdom, he is still present here now. And um, are you willing, am I willing, to let Jesus correct and inform our perceptions of him? Okay, let's, um, or I should say too, um, and I, like, where does your lineage fall? Where does mine fall? Um, It is not in this, mine is not in this line. Um, And yet, what kind of gratitude do I feel, do you feel, for such a God who grafts in outsiders and foreigners into his people and gives them eternally meaningful kingdom work? Um, There is kingdom work available that's meaningful for all those who trust in Christ. Um, Okay, let's move on to our next division Thinking about how God's plan to reclaim this world addresses not only our felt problems, but our real problems. So Matthew's been doing multiple things. Um, He's provided the backdrop of God's larger story while he's validated Christ's identity and eligibility to be the Messiah. And so verse 18, Matthew transitions into narrative, and he, this has been from the perspective of the Father thus far, and Matthew continues with that. Joseph will function as uh, Jesus' adoptive father, uh, and certainly legally, Um, and so we see this section, uh, this division, verses uh, 18 to 25, Jesus' right birth, in three sections. Joseph's dilemma, verses 18 to 19, God's intervention, verses 20 to 23, and Joseph's response, verses 24 to 23. So first, uh, we'll look at the dilemma. Um, Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way, verse 18. When his mother, Mary, had been betrothed to Joseph, 
Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. And so scholars tell us that this first century Jewish marriage began with this kind of period of betrothal. Um, a, a man and a wife were legally married, and yet there was a period of time when they did not live together or were sexually intimate. And so um, Matthew says uh, here, in this time when there was already a betrothal, so the legal claim of Jesus to possibly to be adopted as Joseph's um, son in the line of David was that was contractually underway. Um, during that time, Jesus was conceived. And this was not conceived in the way that any other human baby has ever been conceived. Matthew says it succinctly here, found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Luke and his account tells us a little bit more. The Holy Spirit overshadowed her. Maybe that's poetic language. and But in the end, miraculously created physical life within Mary's body. And so, it, evidently, as Luke tells us, Mary knew her pregnancy was of God. And Matthew wants us as readers to know that Mary had not committed adultery. Um, but apparently, Joseph did not know that. Um, it, he knew, of course, that he was not the father of Mary's baby. And this was obviously distressing. Uh, we can imagine how he felt. Um, Matthew doesn't focus on that. But we know that Matt, Joseph had a plan. He was planning to quietly divorce her or release her from the marriage bond. Why would he do that? Um, the narrator gives a key evaluative statement. And he tells us Joseph was a just man. Um, meaning, or your translation could say righteous. And because of that, he did not want to disgrace her. Um, and that is a repeated theme of Matthew that we will see righteousness includes a posture of mercy. This was, uh, she, he wanted to um, show her mercy. Um, and so we see God's, that's Joseph's dilemma and his plan. And God intervenes in verses uh, 20 and starting in verses 20 and 21. And so like Joseph's namesake from Genesis, um, this Joseph receives a dream from the Lord. And he's called son of David. And that's God's confirmation of Joseph's identity. And it's a subtle little corroboration with Matthew's claim that he made um, in verse 16. And notice the command that uh, the Lord sends through his angel, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So, notice the command to Joseph is do not fear. Why would Joseph have feared? Um, what, what do righteous people fear? Um, did he fear displeasing the Lord? I don't know, but I think we could ponder that. He said, do not fear to receive Mary as your wife. And so, he reveals, the angel reveals God's message that Mary's pregnancy is of an unprecedented, completely divine origin. Um, it was not conceived in the normal human way that every other human has always been conceived up to this point. Um, Joseph does have a role 
according to this message, uh, you will call. So Joseph is the one who's going to um, name this this son um, and name him a specific name. This is indicates that Joseph would function as the legal father. This is a father's act of confirming legitimacy of a child. Um, Jesus is, as um, Matthew hints here, um, the Greek form of the Old Testament name Joshua, the one whom God used to lead Israel into uh, the land that God had promised for them. So the name literally means, in Hebrew, then in Greek, uh, the Lord saves. In the first century, this was a common name expressing hope that, like we talked about earlier, the Lord would deliver Israel from their oppressors, the Romans. But the angel's interpretation of this name is very significant um, in two ways. This is a surprising, this is the focal point I suggest to you of the entire chapter. Um, it's surprised in two ways. First, um, for he will save his people from their sins. The subject, the grammatical subject is surprising. It is suggests he will save his people, suggests a divine person. It is not, the angel does not say by him, God will save his people. But in the, and in the Greek, this is especially pronounced, but he himself will save his people. Um, and second, uh, it's very surprising, I suggest to you, that in the angel says so succinctly that save from what? Matthew's Jewish readers would gladly recognize, as the Old Testament narrative relates, that they do need saving. Um, Israel needed saving a lot. But this saving was most commonly understood as saving from Israel's enemies, oppressing nations like Egypt and Midian, Babylon, and Rome. This unique son, with his divine origin and power, would save them from their sins. As if to set the expectation that Jesus will save them, uh, save his people from not only their sins, but all that oppresses them. Not only their felt needs, sickness, disease, and their enemies, which we're going to see Jesus' ministry address many of those felt needs and problems directly, but Jesus is coming to save people from the root cause of problem and their greatest need, the internal rebellion of God's people and actually all people from uh, that their hearts have toward God, which is summarized in that term, their sins. Um, so Matthew's explanation uh, of this, he offers a fulfillment prop, fulfillment formula. We'll see this uh, going on in verses 22 and 23. We'll see this several times later. Um, all of this is happening to fulfill a prophecy about Christ's virgin birth. Um, he is going to, Matthew will interpret many events in this pattern of fulfillment, um, suggesting that everything that Jesus did was the fulfillment of God's plan and prophecy that he had already spoken to his people. And so this particular prophecy um, is, in Isaiah, had another historical context. It had another fulfillment um, during Ahaz's reign, uh, who was mentioned in uh, verse 11, uh, I'm sorry, verse 9. But Matthew is indicating that there is a fuller fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. This is a pattern that will be repeated. Um, Matthew is inviting, um, Matthew is indicating that Jesus' coming 
invites a new way of reading the Old Testament um, that has Jesus Christ as the ultimate organizing and interpretive center. Everything points to him and everything comes from him. Even the things that we didn't really understand were actually prophecies and were pointing to Jesus. Um, And this uh, particular, uh, this prophecy talks about his name, Emmanuel, that Jesus will be God with us. This is the mystery and beauty of the persistent God who wants to be with even rebellious people who are made in his image. It is the, the indication that God is coming to restore his kingdom and dwell among us. God the Son, the second member of the Trinity, He has always existed in union with God the Father and God the Spirit. And now at this point in time, in human history, God the Son submitted to the Father's plan and humbles Himself to be born as a human baby, that He could reveal to us who who God is and that He would save us from our sins by dying on the cross the sinless man, man, God, man, took our sins upon himself, and so that with that uh, that act of uh, divine judgment alleviated from us, that we could be restored to dwell with God and to know Him and have intimate, unbroken fellowship with Him. So we see in this last section um, of this narrative. That in verses 24 to 25, Joseph responds to God's intervention with faithful obedience. And we see that Matthew, in the um, Matthew displays for us the King Jesus, we will see that, but he also gives us examples of what it looks like to be in the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is not just future when Jesus returns, it certainly will be that. But it is also now, and Jesus, I'm sorry, Joseph is an example of someone whose heart belongs to God. Um, he was willing to let go of his own plan and receive God's plan. He cared more about following God than about public distri- disgrace. Um, and he was willing to believe the crazy thing that Mary was pregnant by divine intervention. Does that sound foolish to you? Maybe not, but it is likely, very likely, that you and I know many people who would doubt this. Believing in the Jesus of the Bible will demand a lot, a lot of faith, Um, but actually even a lot more than this. Foremost, that Jesus resurrected from the dead. But this act, just like that one, and all of Jesus' other miracles, this is no ordinary act. It is the plan and work of a big God doing what he alone can do, displaying that for us. And yet, how quiet and small he allows some of his most powerful kingdom work to be. Who could see this? Mary and Joseph, and I guess Elizabeth, um, and maybe Zechariah. But a very small group of people were those who saw this unfold. Um, And Joseph's life, as he submits to uh, God's plan, echoes or manifests what Mary vocalized in um, in the Gospel of Luke. I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. Because he woke from his sleep, verse 24, and did exactly as the angel of the Lord commanded him. And, and even um, and protected her sexual purity. Um, 
So this brings us to our principle uh, for this division. Believing what God says about Jesus will shape your life. Believing what God says about Jesus will shape your life. We do not come into the family of God understanding who God is, who Jesus is, um, and how we're supposed to behave in the family. Um, It involves us learning, learning who he is, learning who Jesus is. Um, And so it makes me think about who, um, what we're about when we're here. We're starting the study in BSF of the book of Matthew, but why are you here? Why am I here? Are we wanting to uh, to gain knowledge, um, to have a good time? Do we want people to say, to look at us at some point and say, like, oh, you're so smart. You know all these things about the Bible and about Jesus. But ultimately, and there's some good parts about um you know, growing in knowledge, of course we want to do that. And being in fellowship with people as we studied the Bible, that's very good. Um, and yet, what we learn comes down to this. Um, what we learn must be reflected in our lives. Our lives must be shaped by what we learn about Jesus. And not what we just think up in our mind of who we think Jesus is or the kind of Jesus that we would like him to be, but rather believing what God says about Jesus. That will shape our life, um, our lives by the Lord's grace. Because, of course, we cannot just by our own resolve, you know, dig in deep and learn these spiritual things. We need the Lord's Holy Spirit to help us. And uh, may it be that you and I, that our lives will reflect to tomorrow even, that we are the Lord's servants. May it be to us as God intends. Um, and we can be certain that this faith, this obedience will be tested. Um, Jesus is a loving king. We can trust him implicitly even though we can't understand him. We begin thinking about felt problems versus core problems, real problems. And we can also, we can often discern that there's something wrong, but we don't really understand the core. God's plan of redemption is so wise and so good and so comprehensive. He addresses all of our problems. And the center of his plan is a person, his only begotten son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He came to save his people from their sins. He came to be God with us, and this he has done, and he's committed to do it, to see it through to the very end. And so I ask you, and I ask myself, if we can trust him with the true problems, with our sin problem, should should we not trust him with our felt problems? And what would that look like for you this week? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that you love us, that you pursue us, and you teach us. I pray that you would keep us um, and keep us have lives that are shaped by increasing faith in your son. We pray in his name. Amen.